Welcome to Ramblings with a Medical Historian. I'm your host, Nicole Curry, and this is the podcast where I ramble on about the history of medicine, such as fun facts, common misconceptions, and strange practices. I may even talk about other historical topics, such as local history. This is episode 7. Today I will be starting a new series where I will be discussing my medical tools and the operations they were used for. Now I was encouraged to do this by my friend Noelle from the Quite Unusual podcast. She and her co-host Nicole are hilarious best friends that talk about true crime and the paranormal. So a shout out to you, go check out the Quite Unusual podcast. While I'm reenacting, I never get to fully talk about all the instruments and their operations because people are usually too squeamish. Even my friends that I went to university with who were into their own crazy and brutal areas of history find my stuff too gruesome. Probably because I tend to talk about it with so much glee. So for the first episode, I would like to talk about amputations. Now these are the tools and procedures from the War of 1812 as I portray a British regimental surgeon. During battle, soldiers would be wounded in many different ways. For now, we are going to use the example of a soldier being shot in the limb with a musket ball. The musket ball would cause much damage to the limb that could not be repaired and would thus have to be amputated. When the soldiers required amputation, they would be brought to the surgeon's tent like everyone else and would be treated as quickly as possible. The surgeons tried to work quickly to one, get to all the patients, and two, treat the patients while they were still in shock so that the patients did not then go back into shock whilst being treated. There was also no means of anesthesia or anesthetic. That means you were wide awake and were given nothing to dull the pain. At this time, physicians believed that the use of anesthesia and anesthetics would only hinder an operation and pain relief could only be given after surgery. So the first thing that would be done is you would have people hold the patient down so they would not move too much during the operation. The surgeon would then apply the tourniquet to cut off as much blood flow to the limb as possible. A screw tourniquet was the best to use as it could be more tightly bound and it was also easier to use. However, I only have a fillet and stick tourniquet that I made. This would also be an easier and more accessible and also cheaper tool for surgeons to acquire. There are a few ways that this capital operation could have been done. This would be based on each surgeon. 
they would have studied different methods and learned their own through practice. It would have also depended upon the setting and the time allowed for surgery. In the camps, especially during or right after battle, there was both a little time and little supplies. Especially since here in Canada, we were so far removed from England and her supplies. Even during battle, we were far removed from the cities and relied upon the outposts and what supplies could be delivered to those outposts. I will first go through the quickest and easiest way to amputate. It is best to use a curved amputation or capital knife, but a straight blade would work as well. I have only been able to acquire a straight knife myself, and this is actually a kitchen knife that resembles a straight capital knife. So a curved capital knife was sharp on the inside so that the surgeon could reach around the limb and have more reach and cutting surface while they would drag the blade around the limb. They would cut through the flesh and muscle down to the bone. They would then have their assistant pull back the muscle and flesh out of the way so that they would have more access to the bone and also so that they could saw higher up so that the bone would not protrude from the stump. They would use a leather strap about 45 centimeters long with a slit halfway through so that one end of the strap was passed through and it would be more secure for the assistant to drag the muscle back. The surgeon would then take the capital or amputation saw and saw through the bone as quickly as possible. At Fort Erie, they found a mass burial that is from the British assault on the fort on August 13, 1814, when the British tried to reclaim the fort from the Americans. As the British were storing the fort, the bastion beneath their feet exploded as sparks from a cannon ignited the gunpowder in the magazine in the bastion. Around 150 to 250 British soldiers were killed and many more were wounded. The British had roughly 309 wounded and Surgeon William Dunlop wrote that they worked on the wounded for nearly three days straight and the Americans had nearly 200. The surgeons had to work as quickly as possible. From the bones recovered we can see that there were many amputations that took place and we could also see the procedures that they used. So the surgeons were actually sawing about two-thirds of the way through the bone and then snapping the rest so that they could remove the limb quicker. Now I'll try to find images if I can and post them on Instagram and Facebook for you. So after the limb was removed, the surgeon would then take the tenaculum, which was a sharp, curved, needle-like tool. They would use this tool to hook into the ends of the arteries and pull them out and then they would use a ligature to tie them closed. After 
all the arteries were securely tied, they would remove the tourniquet and bandage the stump. It is said that two round pledges of lint, which is a small wad of absorbent cotton or other soft material used to stop up a wound, are placed over the bone ends, followed by a piece of fine linen over the stump muscles. Lint, sprinkled with flour, fills in the skin edge defects. Pledges of lint and toe follow. Long strips of linen cross to hold the dressings. A roller secures these strips to the stump. Finally, a woolen cap covers the entire leg stump. Now, another method that could have been used and one that was becoming more popular as it allowed for better healing of the limb. And it only had a few minor changes. So the setup was all the same. The patient would be held down, the tourniquet would be applied. Then the surgeon would use the amputation knife to cut through the skin down to the muscle. The assistant would then retract the skin, pulling it proximally or back towards the body. And then the surgeon would make one or several passes around the limb, cutting through the layers of muscle down to the bone. With each pass, the surgeon would move the cuts closer and closer to the limb while the assistant drew the layers back. The surgeon was making an inverted cone shape at the end of the limb so that once the limb was removed, they could fold the skin and muscle back and close it over the end of the stump. So the assistant would draw the layers back using either their hands, but preferably a strip of linen. So for the forearms and lower legs where there are two bones, two slits would be cut halfway through the cloth so that you would have three tails on one end. These tails would be passed through and around the bones so that the fabric would be able to cup the flesh and muscles and would have more grip while it pulled all these layers back. For the singular bones like the humerus or femur, they would cut only one slit so that you had two tails. Once the muscles and flesh were pulled far enough back from the bone, the surgeon would saw through the bone and remove the limb. They would then use the tenaculum to ligate all the arteries and then they would remove the tourniquet. Once that was completed, they would fold over the muscles and flesh and loosely suture the wound closed. Then they would bandage up the patient, placing lint or cotton at the base of the stump so that it would absorb any drainage and then simply bandaging up the rest. Now, if the surgeon had enough time, they would make sure that there were no sharp edges on the bone that could be painful to the patient later on. They would use a ronger or gnawing forceps to trim the edges. They would have also loosened the tourniquet a little bit to make sure that each artery was properly tied before removing it completely. 
They would also be careful to only tie the artery and not the nerve that ran alongside it so that it would not pinch the nerve causing chronic neuralgia or nerve pain for the patient. The ligatures would be left with long ends to hang outside the wound so that after about a week or so of healing they could be removed. Just like we still have to remove our stitches today. Otherwise, they would use catgut ligatures when the sutures were inside the body and they could not be removed later on. So this is similar to the idea of our dissolving sutures today. The wound was also not completely sutured closed as to not seal it shut at first. They did this so that the wound would be open enough to allow the non-absorbing ligatures to hang loose, but also so that the wound could drain. Like I said before, the lint or cotton would be used to absorb that drainage. Now, cauterization was used to seal a wound after amputation in the past. However, although you are stopping the bleeding, you are also sealing in the infection. Cauterization was still being used to stop bleeding and to treat hemorrhages. However, Amboise Pare popularized the use of ligature over cauterization in the 1500s because he realized that the ligature method resulted in better healing of the patients than cauterization. Also, the stump would be overexposed with the cautery method. So these two methods are called circular amputation, and both of these would have been used during the War of 1812. Now, there is also the flap amputation method, which was popularized in 1837 by Robert Liston. This method was considered faster, gave more skin coverage to the stump, and also resulted in less post-operative pain. The preparation for the operation, use of the tourniquet and saw, ligation of the vessels and dressings were much the same as the circular amputation method. So there was actually two different types of the flap amputation. First, you have the singular flap method and this was designed for amputations below the knee. So first the surgeon would make an oblique incision through the skin and subcutaneous tissues from the base of the calf proximally over the tibia and fibula. After retraction, the underlying tissue was cut to the bone leaving the gastrocnemius muscle for padding the stump. Now this was also called the oval amputation because of its oblique cut. After retraction and sawing of the bones, the flap was brought forward. Since the flap was large and bulky, the surgeon would use interrupted sutures about an inch apart. And this was to leave room for the inevitable inflammation and also so that the wound could drain. You also have the double flap amputation method. 
and this began with the surgeon grasping and raising the anterior skin and muscles from the bone. The point of the amputation knife was pushed horizontally through the side of the limb until it encountered the bone. The point was then guided up and over, then through the muscle beyond until it exited through the skin opposite its entrance. The blade was then angled upwards and distally to give an anterior flap. The knife was inserted into the initial opening and along the same course until again meeting the bone. This time the point was worked under and then slightly upwards until the previous exit was reached and the blade was angled downward to match the first flap. As the assistant gradually retracted the flaps, the surgeon severed any tissue that remained in the angle between the flaps. The bone could then be sawn free and the skin and muscle drawn forward to join the two skin edges by interrupted sutures and adhesive plaster strips to hold the skin together. So there you have a few methods of amputation. Two from the War of 1812 and two that could have been used during the Civil War. So I hope you like this series that I am starting. I will continue doing it along with my other episodes. If you have any questions, comments, concerns, or would just like to follow me and learn more, you can find me on Instagram and Facebook at Ramblings with a Medical Historian. I am also on Twitter at Ramblings underscore MH, though I am hardly ever on there to be honest. You can also email me at ramblings.mh at gmail.com. So, Thank you for listening and keep rambling on.